Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarland or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. I'd like to welcome everybody back to Football's Family Podcast. And I got a special guest via Zoom today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Steve Massey. Now I've got a uh, book. It's uh, it's called Starless Steelers. Um, and it's the story of the Steelers' first playoff team, uh, which was in 1947. And the uh, players were pretty much anonymous. A lot of them were World War II vets that returned. Uh, they were all uh, tough as nails, and they didn't have an ounce of quit in them. And their coach was a guy named Jock Sutherland. And uh, Jock was uh, austere, and he developed uh, a really tough offense that was basically the basis for the uh, 66 Packers uh, sweep. And uh, defensively, uh, they had a real solid team as well. Um, and it's just basically the story of that team, how they came together, how different people had uh, imp- important games. Uh, sometimes they were in the spotlight for just a few seconds. Uh, they were longer and uh, they all had a, a great life uh, after football. Uh, the book is uh, Amazon and it's called Starless Steelers. And my name is Steve Massey. You can also follow me on Twitter at 1947 Steelers. Yeah, I'm balling you right now. And uh, I think I found you because somebody had tagged you or or retweeted something about the Steelers, and that's where I found you. And it was funny as I actually got in contact with Steve at the Titans Bears game that I was at a few a few days ago, and it just so happened to work out that he can come on today. Now, 1947—that's a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, and and you can hear. Hey, hold on, hold on a second. You're okay. My, my son has a husky, and they like to whine about everything imaginable. Okay. Yeah. But, no, uh, 1947, you're talking about two years after the end of the war. Uh, many of them, if not all of them, were uh, veterans of, of uh, probably the Pacific more than anything, but I'm sure the uh, European uh, – what made them – mesh as a unit were you able to to get into that you know i, I think it was uh partially i think i think the war had a lot to do with it um let me give you the story of one of the guys that played on the team there was a guy named paul adams and uh paul was a reserve linebacker because the players played both ways uh, so it was a skeleton where it was only about 35 people, depending on your source, sometimes 36. But Paul Adams was in the war and uh, he was actually in the Pacific. 
Um, he invaded with the uh, Marines, and um, he was shot three times by the Japanese. And um, he carried a lot of shrapnel, too, in his body right up to the end of his life. He got two Purple Hearts. He came back uh, home, Kentucky, and uh, he caught on with the Steelers for a couple of years. And um, he actually had a piece of shrapnel very close to his brain stem, close oh. to his head. And, you know, football is a rough sport with on your head, on your skull. And those guys wore leather helmets. And uh, Paul died in 1974. Um, he suddenly started uh, and he went to the doctor and they found out that the shrapnel had inched closer to his brain. Ultimately, it ended up killing him, uh, you know, 30 years after he got back from the war. Um, and he wasn't the only one that, that was in the war. Uh, a great many of them were. Uh, one guy uh, flew a mission. He flew President Truman right after the uh, atomic bomb was dropped. I don't know whether it was the first one or the second one. And um, uh, certain Master Olinjano, um, he was over in uh, Normandy when uh, D-Day happened, when they invaded Europe. And I, I think that I think the war really molded an, an inner character uh, with a generation that had already gone through the depression and, you know, uh, college was pretty rough and tumble back then as far as football. And, um, I think it hardened them down pretty well. These are the type of guys. And I think I read somewhere that, uh, these guys were not afraid of a flying wedge. They were not afraid of, of going deep. They were not afraid of anything because they went through, well, like you said, the Normandy invasion, uh, many of them probably went through Iwo Jima and, and, and all that. Having that camaraderie had to be, it's something that you can't, you can't get at a, a all season workout. I totally agree. Uh, and when they were in training camp, when you, I've got a section in the book about training camp and about the preseason. And uh, I tell you, those guys, you know, they had mashed up fingers. Uh, so one, one guy uh, heard a disc in his leg until only two months. Um, and the training the schedule was very rigorous. They did watch game film. They practiced twice a day. They didn't have much free time. But it was nothing uh, compared to World War II. Um, and anything back then you were talking about wedges, crack back blocks, uh, horse collar tackle, all that stuff was legal. It was and goes. Um, there's a picture online of um, uh, Johnny Zero, who was the tailback uh, running against the Redskins. And in that picture that you can find online, there are liberties in that game, in that play, in that one picture. There's a, there's a clip, there's a horse collar. And all this stuff is going on. It was really visceral and raw back then, much more so than today. What made you write this book? I'm trying to look up that picture right now. What, what got you to, to write this book? Well, uh, a long time ago, when I jumped on the Steelers bandwagon, in the early 70s, I wanted to know everything I could about the team. And uh, this is when I was at what's called today, it was called middle school. It was junior high back then. Um, I got this book by Ray Didinger. And I don't remember how I got it or where it from, but I was really young. 
and it was uh, all about the history of the Steelers. Now, Dittinger was only 27 years old when he wrote the book. It's a fantastic read. Um, uh, you know, a uh, uh, much heralded uh, sports writer for decades. Anyway, uh, I just started learning about the team, and when I came across the 47 team, um, I just I couldn't get enough of, from reading about them um, because of the conflict between Bill Dudley and Jock Sutherland and, uh, you know, the, the tragedy. I don't want to ruin the end of my book, but there's a tragedy that involves uh, Jock Sutherland. And that was really what fixated my attention on. And I've always loved that team. So I just kept researching them. And as I did um, and I had access to more things uh, uh, because of the Internet. Uh, I was really able to find out what a special group of guys they were. And I was, I was glad I did too, because they're just remarkable people. Uh, I, I assume that none of them are alive now. Have you talked to their families? I believe that the last that, yeah, I talked to a lot of families. Uh, I talked to the Jansen T family. Um, and he was, he was one of the more proclaimed players. Players and a single wing, so they only had one receiver, uh, and he caught a lot of passes. If he went into that defensive backfield, it was his quadruple coverage. Um, uh, I, the last guy that I know of that could possibly be alive is Paul Krieger, but I couldn't find any contact information from his family. He's got a he's famous for work that he did with the FBI uh, in surveilling communists long after the Steelers had finished the season. And uh, I had his uh, son, but Mr. H Gene Hubka, his uh, son. But before I could schedule the interview with him, Gene Hubka passed away at 99. So mm -hmm. I missed that. Yeah, I missed that opportunity. And you just can't squander them when people live for that long because, you know, the days are numbered. All of our days are numbered, uh, but especially so when you when you get to that century mark, if you make it that far. Uh, some of us won't make it that far, but 99, good gracious. Now, you said you, you read a book, uh, got you started on Steelers. Uh, what, what are some of the memories you have about the Steelers growing up that made you a fan of the Steelers? That's what this football family is all about. What made you a fan of them? Well, uh, somewhere around 73 or 74, when the team was really starting to come together and they made that fabulous run of Super Bowls in the 70s, I was a little boy. Um, you know, I'm, I was eight when they won their first Super Bowl, and I just kind of latched on to them like a lot of kids do. They like to be with a winner. That's who they're, they're loyal to. And when the team started going into decline, when I was in my mid-teens, I was just hooked uh, because, you know, I saw them every week, and, you know, I've, I've been able to uh, – uh, I've been able to talk to and, and write letters and emails to a lot of the Steelers from the 70s. Uh, and I think that, you know, when I talked to Rocky Blyer, I told Rocky that, you know, uh, they could do wrong in my eyes. Uh, and then I then as I continued to follow him, I got into the culture of the Steelers. It's a whole it's a whole thing. And, it, you know, a lot of great teams have that. Um so, you know, I just got involved with that and just kept following them, following them. This is, this is something that I, I guess uh, in the 70s, you pretty much had two teams that people knew of. 
you, and I think our Zoom is having some issues. Are you are you able to hear me? Because I think our Zoom is having an issue. But there we go. There we go. I think we're back. Um, there are two teams that America pretty much followed. It was the Cowboys and the Steelers. And what I understand about that is that if you latched on to one of them, you were on them for the rest of your life. Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you now, Jeremy. I lost you briefly. No, that, that's okay. It's uh, If people are wondering, uh, we've had uh, – my last podcast was about the flood that happened here at Waverly. We're still recovering from it, and our internet is having some issues, so I apologize for that. But I don't know what you heard, Mr. Steve, but I, well, what I understood about the 60s, 70s, and 80s is that uh, you pretty much had two teams that people followed. You had the Steelers and you had the Cowboys. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, but now you you also had the the Raiders uh, were popular and the, the Dolphins for a long time in the early seventies. But they're they didn't really endure the same way that the Cowboys and the um and the Steelers and the Raiders did. Now I tell you, uh, you and I both uh, have a familiarity with the South. My brother uh, is a big Saints fan, uh, and so back then we we would have these battles over the television because he'd want to see the Saints. And growing up in Mississippi, they were on every week. Well, with the Steelers, as long as they were winning, I could see them eight or nine times a year. There's no cable TV back then, uh, and so we you know we get in big arguments uh, about the remote. So. Uh, you know, I, my hometown team now is the Falcons, and I tend to favor them over the Saints. Uh, that's, you know, brotherly love. Because See, that's how you do it. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. But going – the Saints in the 70s and 80s, ooh. Did he, did he have a, a, a paper bag that he put over his head? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think he was ever ashamed. You know, it's just never – you know, they had a great quarterback in Archie Manning, but they didn't give him a line. Um, and then to me, their colossal mistake was they brought in Hank Stram, but they didn't give him anything to work with. And uh, Hank was a great coach, uh, but the Saints just did. They, they cut him loose after two or three years. They had Bum Phillips, too, and they didn't give Bum time enough to develop the team. Yeah, Bum is one of those guys that uh... – I've done a lot more research since the Titans moved to Tennessee on the Houston Oilers. He's a pretty good coach. He's a pretty good coach. Oh, he's, he was a great coach. Uh, and, and frankly, as, as much as it's possible to get to, to know who these guys are from reading and research, we never know what the real person is until we're able to interact with them. And Bum's gone. Um, he was a great man. You know, he's a, a coach. Uh, he's got a book called the, uh, he had a book, like I said, he's passed away. He had a book called uh, Cowboy. Uh, and in the book, he talks about all three of those phases of his life. He's a very humble guy uh, because those Oilers teams, I hated them back then, but I don't anymore because, you know, they were worthy foes, so to speak. If it wasn't for the Steelers, I think the Oilers would have won a couple of Super Bowls. I think they would have Absolutely. And – and I want to say this for the record. I don't care who, who gets angry about it. Renfro caught the ball in the AFC Championship. Yeah, uh, when he they did. ruled him out of bounds, he caught that ball. But you know, Dan Pastorini said after the game, he said that the Steelers would have just found a way to win, um, and he was happy for them. So, oh, um, but he caught the ball. There's two plays. There's two things that I think 
led the Oilers to come to Tennessee. That's one of them. And then the comeback from uh, the, the Buffalo Bills coming back and winning that playoff game. That did it right there. But you grew up in you grew up in the seventies. Do you have a favorite player? A favorite player? Yes. Oh yeah, I want I wanted to be Jack Lambert. You know, thank thank God that you know I didn't knock my front teeth out uh, because you know I, oh I just gosh. thought he was my he was my favorite. I thought he was crazy. Well, here's here's my thing. There's there's two men that I would not want to go to their house and ask their daughter for a date: Jack Lambert and Andre the Giant. <laughs> what want to do that? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't either. Andre was me. a big guy. Andre was the one nicest man you'll ever meet out here. I, I've never met the man. I can't do it now. But what I heard is that he would he would just he would give and he would just love on you. But he's seven four or five hundred pounds. I don't think I'm going to mess with him. And Jack Lambert looks like he would eat you. Yeah, and you know, Lambert. It's a funny thing that you know Lambert. He's I think he's a game warden now. And um, he doesn't talk. His kids didn't know that he even played football until they were in their early teens. They had no idea. Um, and he's in Ohio. The last I heard, he was a, a few autograph shows every year, but that's about it. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. Good gracious. Because some of the guys, when you're when you're able to meet them or to talk to them, I'll friend you on Facebook. And it's a funny thing because some of them like to talk about their playing days. And others just they just don't they just don't talk about it a lot. So you did uh, a whole lot of research for this book. You've gotten into people's heads. You have to to write a book about a whole year. I mean that's pretty intense research. What's one thing without spoiling the book? What is one thing that would kind of get our our, our appetite whetted for this book? What's one story? That well, you obviously the obviously the Paul Adams story. Um, is important. I honestly think that the that the heart of the book is actually something that didn't happen in 47. It was in 46. And that was when Bill Dudley played for Jock Sutherland. And Bill was a, a short little guy, the MVP in 46. Um, he led the league that year in uh, punting, punt return yardage, receiving yardage, rushing yardage, touchdowns, total yards. All the way through, and interceptions too. And he was, you know, he was the darling of Pittsburgh. But when they hired Josh Owen to coach the team the same year, they hated each other from day one. They couldn't stand each other. And um, Bill ended up uh, getting traded to the Lions, and he he retired. He actually retired first, but out of loyalty for family, he came out of retirement so that they could get something for him. And they traded him to Detroit. And that's when the Starless Steelers were born. Because in Jock's eyes, Bill was a prima donna and a showboat. I don't think that was true. And I don't think that was fair. Uh, but when he assembled the pieces to the 47 team with 11 rookies, those were his boys. That he, he made that happen. So that the way that they played and the lack of a star came from the way that he molded. And I think that's that's the center of the book. That's a bridge between the early days of the Steelers having star players and not being able to win to be converted into a starless team. But there was tragedy waiting at the end. I'm not going to tell what it was. You have to buy the book. I have to get the book. Uh, 
two things and then I'll let you go because I appreciate your time. And by the way, we're going to um, on the, the Football's Family uh, Facebook page and Twitter page, uh, I will try to find that information for your book and I will post it there. And then, of course, it'll be on this. Wonderful. Uh, we wanted to get this out and I'll, I'll talk to you off screen about getting me a copy if I could, you know, autographed if that's possible. But, you know, you know, if I only knew the author. If I only knew the author, I can maybe do that. I don't know. Um, my father-in-law uh, grew up in Pittsburgh. And he um, he let me know about how many Super Bowls the Steelers have won compared to the Titans. And, and he let me know until his dying day that uh, we have none. Um, but the thing that really gets me, and he told me about the, yeah, yeah, that that's what he would do. From 1947 to 1969, there was a decline in the Steelers till till Chuck Noll came. What really, for what you know, and maybe you don't know all the answers to this, but what really brought that decline about? Well, oddly enough, uh, a lot of that can be placed on Buddy Parker. Buddy was a coach that had won two championships with the Lions. And they brought him in, and up until that, in terms of overall play, because Jock's time was so short with the Steelers, Buddy was the winningest coach that they'd ever had. But he traded draft picks. He hated rookies. He couldn't stand them. So he brought in a lot of older players. And by the time that he was basically on his way out the door, because he kept quitting, but the Roonies called his bluff the last time, uh, there were no draft picks left. They didn't have anybody to draft. And Chuck Noll, when he came along in 69, uh, what he found out was that teams were just trying to trade him junk for their draft picks. Uh, and that's when everything changed to go green. You know, in, in a span of, I think it was three days, the Steelers became the worst team in football to having hired Chuck Noll and drafting Joe Green. That happened over a three-day period. And that that was the beginning of the turnaround. It took a little time, uh, but when they made the playoffs in 72, that's when they started that insane run of uh, uh, winning seasons. That draft picks are important, Cleveland Browns. You don't trade a first-round draft. You don't get a first-round draft pick and draft Johnny Menzel. You don't do that. Draft picks are important. But I know that because Jake, Jake Locker, even though I liked him and Vince Young, I understand that completely. If you make a bad draft pick, first-round pick, especially for a quarterback, it sets you back for three or four years. It really does. I, I totally agree. Uh, and, you know, the, it's, a, it's such a different game than it was back then. But that Noel went after defensive linemen. That's what he wanted. And he did draft uh, Terry Henry. Because they thought that he'd be gone, but everybody thought he had a knee injury and he didn't. Uh, but that they drafted linemen every year. They had the steel curtain in place by 71. You see, they drafted LC and Joe in 69, and then 71, they got the other two pieces. Well, uh, you know, later, that was when the steel curtain emerged. That is one of those defenses that I think if you were to place it in today's game, it would it would carry over. 
I think that's one of the few things I could say from the older game could carry over to today. I, I didn't hear the question, Jeremy. Oh, I, I no, I think that the uh, steel curtain from the 70s could carry over to today's game. Of course, you'll have to change some of the tackling. But yeah, I, I, think- I do too. Uh, the, today's game is more, as far as the line play, it's more linebacker driven because yes. now uh, and in, you know, in the last decade or so, they've switched to three, four. They've had to because the game is, is a much different. The offenses are schemed much differently now. It's more oriented toward passing. Uh, but, you know, I, it's hard to imagine uh, how tough that front four were. And there were other great lines back then, like the fearsome. Four and uh, um, but the one thing that that is kind of a uh, 360 is the fact that the linemen were smaller than they were the deep much smaller than they are today. Um, but they're reverting back to the smaller linemen now because those big jumbo guys from the 1990s can't they can't move to protect these passes that are going on all over the place. When you have uh, in the seventies, offense was basically a run-first offense, sixty percent at least. Uh, yes. You cannot compare the passers back then to the passers today; they're just not the same. Um, could Terry, uh, you know, Terry Bradshaw survive in today's game? Probably not. Not the same. Not the same. Uh, because I think he was more of a past second type of guy. I completely agree. Uh, most people forget about the fact that Terry could run the ball. He could yeah. run the ball. I mean, he, he amassed a lot. I think his, I don't know what his yards per carry were, but it's a lot. Um, and it, it wasn't designed when I was, at, when I had the, the good fortune being able to talk to Terry Hanratty, uh, sometime back, uh, Terry ran the ball a lot too. And I asked him, I said, were those design plays or were they run for your life? And his very quick answer was it was run for your life uh, because the line was so bad back in the late sixties for the Steelers. Those guys came rushing in on them. Hey, you move down the field. Um, a lot of the Steelers in the running game with Franco and Rocky Fuqua as well, because he was very good, but came from the trap, the trapping offense. Uh, Noel was a master with that. Uh, and they ran those trap plays to perfection all the way up until the mid eighties, even with people like Frank Pollard and other guys that are unfortunately forgotten about now. The eighties Steelers really didn't get the attention that I think they deserve. Uh, and, and, and I think part of the problem with that is, and, and, now, I'll let you go with this. Uh, and I, again, I appreciate it. 83 draft. If they had drafted Marino, um, you would have had another dynasty. But I'm sure that's still kind of a sore point with you, isn't it? Well, yeah. And, and people talk, talk about drafting. You know, the guy that they drafted was this fellow that had a uh, Gabe Riviera. It was called Senior Sack. Okay. And, yeah. you know, he, he ended up, the poor guy ended up, uh, you know, in an automobile accident and he was paralyzed. So we'll never know what he could do. But, you know, obviously, Marino, despite it doesn't matter who they took because 
I can't, I can't fathom what they would have been able to do with Marino because Star Wars still had two good years left, and they had Louis Lips too. I just uh, can you imagine learning behind Bradshaw or, or or having him in the area, and then you had Dan Marino. Chuck Noll would have changed his offense to suit Marino, and. You know, it it took the Steelers how many years before they went back to the Super Bowl? I can't remember. Was it 92 or 93? Um, that was Super Bowl 30. So that would have, I believe that would have been 95, right? 95. Yeah. Yeah. 95. Absolutely. Game two. Had a good game, too. Uh, I, you know, uh, just didn't come up. They were up against a great team. Those Cowboys teams in the mid 90s were fantastic. That is, um, that is one of the things that I looked at, and I was like, Steelers probably could have won that game, but Neil O'Donnell just decided to throw it to the opposite team a couple of times. But yeah, he he got us there, but uh, you know, stuff happens. So <laughs> all those guys were human, and you know, he couldn't get it done. Unfortunately, it happened. But uh, Mr. Steve, I appreciate it again. Plug your book for me, will you? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's called Starless Steelers. It's written by Steve Massey. You can uh, get it at Amazon.com. Uh, I believe it's available at Barnes & Noble as well. Um, please follow 1947 Steelers. Uh, I'd love to hear from you and talk to you. And y'all, thank you for listening to the Footballers Family Podcast. And thank you, Mr. Steve. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday and Thursday and Monday and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA, golf, cricket, esports, and of course, NFL football. And just to get the 2021 NFL season started right, Thrive Fantasy is holding its $100,000 guaranteed contest with a $20,000 first prize. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. Or enter promo code SHN when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique 
unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes.